Hey guys, buckle up for a new episode of VoiceOver Work and Audiobook Sampler. Where do you listen? Today is April 30th, 2022, and today we're going to help you find your next great listen. Peter Holland's book, How to Suffer Well, which is presented today in its chapter-by-chapter chapter preview, is a literal guidebook to defeating the voices in your head that tell you to give up. Instead, those voices will be replaced with other voices that tell you it'll be okay, this will pass, and life goes happily on. Learn how to tolerate the rigors of life without collapsing. Chapter 1. To Suffer is to Live There isn't a religious tradition or philosophy out there modern or ancient, that hasn't attempted to tackle the problem of suffering. In fact, why people should experience pain and suffer at all is a fact of life that humankind has been wrestling with since, well, probably since the very first moment we suffered. While some have attempted to explain why it happens, others have focused on dissecting it as a phenomenon, trying to either reduce it or investigate whether pain can, to some degree, be put to good use. Some have even suggested that our resistance and wrestling with the concept of pain and adversity is itself causing us to suffer. The Buddhists tell a story that goes like this. Long ago, there was a farmer who had problems. He was advised to go and see the Buddha, who was wise and would help him sort his life out. The Buddha asked him why he had come. I'm a farmer, he said. I love farming. But the problem is that sometimes there's no rain, and we really struggle those years. Of course, sometimes we have other problems, and there's too much rain, and the floods destroy everything. But the man didn't stop there. I also have a wife, Buddha. I love her, truly, but sometimes we don't get on. To be honest, occasionally, she gets on my nerves. And my kids, they're lovely kids. They're great. Sometimes, though, they misbehave like you wouldn't believe. The farmer went on and on like this. His in-laws were bothering him. He had money worries. He often tossed and turned in bed at night, wondering about the meaning of life. And his left knee hurt. The Buddha listened patiently, smiled, and simply said, I can't help you. The farmer was astonished. The Buddha continued, Every person has 83 problems. Every one of us. And there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe you can do this or that to fix them, but once the problem is gone, another one springs up in its place. More problems are coming. For example, you'll lose your family and loved ones one day, and you yourself will die. That's a problem you certainly can't do anything about. The farmer, probably beginning to regret his visit, couldn't help but ask angrily, Well, I thought you could help. What's the point of everything you teach if you can't solve my problems? Well, I can maybe help you with your 84th problem, he said. 84th problem? Well, what's that? It's that you want to not have any problems. This attitude underlies the general Buddhist perspective, which is that pain is inevitable, and it's our clinging to or resistance to that experience that causes us problems. In other words, if we practice non-attachment and stop fighting with reality, we can learn to live peacefully in a world that will always contain problems. 
The ancient historical Buddha would have likely found our current-day obsession with happiness and success and ease quite amusing. All of Buddha's four noble truths are in some way about suffering, not blissful, perfect happiness that frees us from the troubles of the world forever. If you're a person living in the modern, industrialized world, though, you probably view suffering quite differently from the Buddhists of thousands of years ago. You might not even believe that you do suffer. Isn't suffering something that poor starving children in Africa do? You might look at your own boredom or malaise or low self-esteem as a mere mental health problem rather than call it something as dramatic as suffering. But that's exactly how the Buddhists would characterize it. They would call countless everyday experiences suffering. Chapter 2. Attachment is our mortal enemy. Let's dig a little deeper. Though the Buddhists had a lot to say about suffering, and though we'll return to their conception of the problem again and again, in truth, their perspective is not especially unique. What's great about the Buddhist approach is that it has a clear and defined explanation for why we suffer, i.e., where it comes from. It's a little like understanding the etiology of a disease. In this case, the disease broadly being the human condition. We start here because once we know why we suffer, we're arguably better prepared to do something about it. The Buddha put forward his four noble truths, which go like this. One, dukkha. Suffering exists and is an unavoidable fact of life, at least in this realm of existence. Two, samudaya. There's a cause for this suffering which is desire, craving, or attachment. 3. Naroda. We can let go of suffering by renouncing our attachment. 4. Marga. We can do this by following the Buddhist Eightfold Path. Though we'll not dwell on the philosophical details too much, it's enough for now to understand the noble truths in this way. Suffering happens, and it happens because we are attached to what is transient. Though there is a solution, we can let go of suffering if we relinquish this attachment. So, it's the nature of reality to change. When we cling and form attachments, we're in opposition to this natural order, and this causes us to suffer. To be released from this suffering is not to eradicate the change inherent in reality, but to cease our attachment to it. An example will explain. Imagine you're walking in the woods one day. And it's beautiful. It's warm and bright. The birds are singing. And you're having an amazing chat with your walking companion. It's like paradise. But it doesn't stay paradise. Life always changes. And so, too, does this day. Maybe clouds roll in and it starts to drizzle. The bird song stops. And your walking companion suddenly becomes grumpy and uninteresting. Suddenly there's an annoying car alarm in the distance that goes on and on and on. Just like that, your lovely walk is not so lovely anymore. But if we're attached to one expression of reality over another, we might tell a story that goes, this is a problem now. It's supposed to be sunny and nice, and it's not. The truth is, rain and shine both belong to the natural order. Sometimes birds sing. Sometimes they don't. The people we love today may be annoying and difficult tomorrow. So we have the first noble truth. There is dukkha, or suffering. And the second noble truth is that the cause of this is you, 
or more accurately, it's your clinging and attachment. For the Buddhists, nothing is permanent. Everything living will die. Clouds come and go. Things shift and change and evolve. Everything is always moving. However, if we cling and form attachments, we grasp hold of something and behave as though this weren't the case. We say, I wish this day would last forever. It won't last forever. And expecting and wanting it to is what causes the pain, not the fact that it changes. The fourth noble truth says that suffering is reduced when we let go of attachment. For example, you look up and see the drizzle and accept it. You see that your companion is grumpy, and you hear the car alarm and realize that there's nothing innately better or worse in it when compared to a bird song. You don't push against it. Chapter 3. How do we overcome? In exploring the causes of suffering, we're already beginning to sketch out some possible ways to overcome it, at least according to Buddhist tradition. We look to the second and third noble truth and see that because the cause of suffering is attachment, we can let go of suffering by letting go of attachment. Simple, right? In theory, anyway. Finding a way to genuinely release our attachments and desires is, according to most practitioners, a life's work. We're conditioned by our culture, we're shaped by our early childhood experiences, and we're all innately primed to grasp, want, and cling, rather than to flow and accept reality for what it is. Everyone suffers, and it's no mean feat to tackle that directly. Think about your life right now. What form does suffering take for you? Perhaps you're depressed or anxious, or you have relationship troubles. Maybe you struggle at work or with finances. Maybe you have an addiction, or maybe your problems seem vast, abstract, and difficult to pin down. Maybe the main form your suffering takes is that you're confused about what's wrong in the first place. You just know you feel bad, but you can't say why or identify a clear path out of the trouble. Exercise 1. Distinguishing between pain and suffering. Let's begin by simplifying things. The different shapes that suffering can take are truly endless. There might be layer upon layer of suffering, and suffering can feel like a knot made of other knots. How do you even begin to untie it all? A great first step to help you find clarity and hopefully a sense of calm is to tease apart what is pain and what is suffering. The Buddhist story of the second dart explains this difference clearly. The unavoidable pains in life are called first darts because they're like an arrow someone shoots at us. These hurt. However, the second darts are our thoughts, reactions, and responses to the first darts. That's so unfair. It's like we shoot ourselves again with another arrow. No longer pain, but suffering. If we want to start identifying our role in maintaining pain, i.e. suffering, we can start by noting the difference between pain and suffering. One way to do this is to slow everything right down so you can look closely at the cascade of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that occur after a painful experience. What can happen is that in our attempt to improve our lives, feel better or fix things, we focus on the second darts. We get carried away with the stories we tell and only end up creating even more confusion and second and third and fourth darts. Instead, it helps you just pause and look at what is actually concrete fact out there in the world and what's happening inside us.
i.e., what exists only as interpretation, expectation, ego, or narrative. The next time you find yourself unhappy or suffering, stop. Become aware and get a journal to help you tease things apart. First, just become aware of what's happening to you without judgment. For example, you may have just had an upsetting argument with a friend, and so you sit down with your journal. To do a dump of everything that's in your heart and mind, you write down the following. I feel really angry. I don't know if I want to be his friend anymore. He thinks he's so much smarter than everyone, and I'm sick of it. I thought we were friends. Why is this happening? What have I done for him to start acting like this? He told me I'm an idiot, but I think he's an idiot. And on and on. Without trying to judge or interpret, you just write... Chapter 4. Stoicism's Approach to Beat Suffering A Stoic is someone who morphs fear into prudence, pain into transformation, mistakes into initiation, and desire into undertaking. Unknown. Tip 1. Control what you can control. The adjective stoic has been used to describe asceticism or having a stiff upper lip when it comes to suffering. Still, the ancient Roman philosophy of stoicism has so much more to offer when it comes to understanding and dealing with pain. It's arguable that through other influential writers and psychotherapists like Paul Dubois in the early 20th century, stoicism has inspired modern-day cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. The ancient writings of Seneca, Marcus Aurelius and others favored a practical and dignified approach to the problem of pain, and their findings were not dissimilar to what the Buddhists on the other side of the world were also discovering. They too understood that pain was part of life. However, by focusing passively on it and dwelling on negativity, the pain was essentially amplified while we fortified our power to consciously focus on what we valued. Where the Buddhist focused on tranquility, compassion, and a peaceful detachment from the transience of life, the Stoics found refuge in objectivity. What does pain look like when we approach it without layers of fear, resistance, or apathy? Seneca echoes the second darts idea when he states, Do not let us build a second story to our sorrow by being sorry for our sorrow. Epictetus similarly advises us to make the best of what is in our power and take the rest as it naturally happens. This is seen as a rational approach to the fact of pain. Again, you might recognize this spirit in the deeply stoic serenity prayer, which has only recently been co-opted by Alcoholics Anonymous and other groups. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. As we did in the previous section, we can consciously work to discern the difference between pain and suffering, between fact and opinion, between sensation and our internal narrative about that sensation. We do not need life to be painless. We need only serenity, courage, and wisdom. Some things in life happen outside of our control and without our permission. Some of these things are devastating. Nevertheless, we're always free to focus on what we can control. What else is there to do, really? Epictetus claims in the Enchiridion, translated by Elizabeth Carter, some things are in our control and others not. Things in our control are opinion, pursuit, desire, aversion, 
and, in a word, whatever are our own actions. Things not in our control are body, property, reputation, command, and, in one word, whatever are not our own actions. The things in our control are by nature free, unrestrained, unhindered, but those not in our control are weak, slavish, restrained, belonging to others. Remember then, that if you suppose that things which are slavish by nature are also free, and that what belongs to others is your own, then you will be hindered, you will lament, you'll be disturbed, and you'll find fault both with gods and men. But if you suppose that only to be your own which is your own, and what belongs to others such as it really is, then no one will ever compel you or restore Chapter 5. Frankel's Approach to Suffering Victor Frankel is an Austrian psychotherapist and famed author of the inspirational book Man's Search for Meaning, which details his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. In this book, Frankel shares his insights from his time spent in four different camps and explains the basis for a theory he would call logotherapy, a therapy centered around the creation of meaning. If we're talking about suffering, then Frankel experienced it. Terror, sickness, starvation, despair, and the threat of death plagued his daily life for three years. In those walls, Frankel encountered something more terrifying than mere physical pain. He had to face the senseless brutality of his fellow man, the feeling of deep anguish, and the loss of hope for anything better. He speaks about looking all around him at others who collapsed into this doom and misery. They stopped believing in a future, and their faith in themselves and humanity in general withered. But here, Frankel noticed other things, too. He noticed that not everyone succumbed, and that some people, seemingly despite all odds, repeatedly chose kindness, hope, and forgiveness. These are the people that survived. He says that the lesson he was taught was that it didn't really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. The challenge of existence, then, was to create an active life, meaning one where he finds and serves his purpose, creates, and does ennobling and positive work. This fulfills us and gives us the strength to face adversity. Frankel also claims that it is our responsibility to craft our own moral attitude and behavior, to develop our own philosophy, and to live by our own ethics. And this had to accommodate suffering, not avoid it. In fact, for Frankel, suffering was a big part of the picture. If there is meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. Man's struggle with suffering, then, is not a mistake, but an opportunity to seek and create something deeper and more meaningful. We all have the choice to behave with dignity, no matter how intense our suffering. We all have the option to choose our values, even to seek to be grateful to our suffering for highlighting those values for us. Frankel might have argued, after all, that his touching and eloquent embrace of the role of suffering came about because of his experiences and not in spite of them.
the experiences of camp life show that man does have a choice of action. There were enough examples, often of a heroic nature, which proved that apathy could be overcome, irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. It is this spiritual freedom. Chapter 6. Suffer Better suffer less. We've taken a close look at three powerful and effective approaches to life's suffering, the Buddhist's perspective, the philosophy of the Stoics, and Viktor Frankl's logotherapy ideas about turning suffering into meaning. You may have noticed plenty of overlap between these, or more accurately, you might have seen what is essentially the same idea reworked in different cultures and historical contexts. Each of them points in its own way to our freedom, responsibility, and conscious choice about how we approach the inevitable pain of life. None of these approaches tells us that pain is something we can or even should eliminate from our experience. We're told by each of these philosophies that action counts. We choose our attitude, and then we demonstrate that attitude by taking action in the world around us. In this chapter, we'll consider more deeply some of the tips and techniques we can use right now, whether we're dealing with minor daily irritations or profound loss and suffering on a bigger scale. The question is, how shall we experience pain? We will experience pain, and the previous chapter has outlined the attitude we can take towards that pain. But now what? What do we do with all this knowledge? In this chapter, We'll look at five practical tips and techniques to use when, note, not if, but when you next experience pain, disappointment, loss, or discomfort. Tip one, get good at reframing. We looked at this when we considered the big, sometimes enormous difference between pain and suffering, i.e. our stories and narratives about what that pain is. Viktor Frankl sees that humans are built for telling these kinds of stories, and he encourages us to use that power for good and rewrite the story of pain so that it's one of compassion, dignity, and love. Reframing might be one of the best things you can learn to do when it comes to pain. Our body receives and interprets signals from our environment that alert us to danger. But this is a very lean process. All the additional messages we tell ourselves are unnecessary and completely under our control. For example, the rule about what counts as pain in the first place. Why are you responding to something in the environment? If you're a modern human, you almost never encounter true physical threat. Basically, the technique of reframing is telling yourself that you don't always have to take your own word for it. It's usually our rules and stories that make us decide something counts as pain. If we remove these stories or rewrite them, suddenly there may not even be pain anymore. Here's an example. A friend forgets your birthday. 
you immediately feel hurt and angry. But rewind a little, and you'll see there's something before the hurt and angry feelings, and that's the mind frame that told you, if someone forgets your birthday, it means they don't care about you. It's this that has caused your reaction, not your friend. But if you can step back a little, you can query this. Is it really true? Can you know that for absolute certain? You can probably think of evidence for the fact that your friend really does care about you. And you can also imagine that there are people you care about to who you've nevertheless forgotten to wish a happy birthday. In other words, don't just assume that your interpretation is obvious or correct. The pain you may feel is real. But cha Chapter 7. The Mindset of the Present John is only 16 years old, but he feels the weight of the world on his shoulders. His parents, teachers, and guidance counselor are pushing him to plan one of the most important decisions of his life, his career, right now. He doesn't know what job will make him happy. He doesn't know how much money he needs to earn. He's never even managed a budget. He spends hours ruminating and poring over advice columns and college websites, but nothing seems to help. He's positive that he needs to go to college, but for what? Should he take a risk on a more interesting but lower-paying career? Or should he choose a path with better pay and more job security? Would he be happy if he chose the latter option? What if he chose the former option and the lower pay left him desperate? What if a good school wouldn't even accept him? Would that mar his chances for life? He's worried, very worried, and not much is helping his anxiety. He spends so much time worrying about his future, trying to figure out the rest of his life, that he starts losing his grasp on what's happening around him. He's stopped talking to most of his friends, and he rarely accepts invitations anymore. Instead, he spends his time reading and worrying, worrying and reading. Soon, his anxiety would interfere with his sleep and distract him while studying, lowering his grades and genuinely limiting his chances of attaining his own best future. Because John can't stop fretting about the future, he's losing his friends, his sanity, and his future. His mother, Julia, has the opposite problem. When she looks at her current life, she sees little of interest. Feeling empty, she retreats into her mind, relishing the hope and excitement of her high school days. Sure, the work was hard, but overcoming academic challenges was a fulfilling struggle that afforded her the opportunity to triumph. She still wishes she'd spent more time on her studies. Back then, her main priority was maintaining her friendships. She'd stay out late, gossiping and laughing for hours with her friends. She can't remember the last time she went out with friends. It had to have been years ago. As a stay-at-home mom, her family has become the sum total of her life. Often she thinks about how different her life could have been if she'd finished her college degree instead of dropping out to get married and become a mother. At the time, it had seemed like a good idea. She was deeply in love and eager to have kids. Her husband and children still make her happy but it isn't enough. She wishes she hadn't thrown away all those opportunities. She could have been self-reliant and respected. She could have made a real difference in the world. But now she's a middle-aged parent with a decades-wide gap in her resume. What could she do now? Career-wise, she was finished. 
She's made her choices. There's nothing she can do. Julia is so preoccupied with her past decisions and the life she used to live that she hardly notices the joy abounding in her current life. Her nostalgia even prevents her from seeing the opportunities she currently has to improve herself and her life. Being stuck in the past is making her miserable in the present. Both mother and son have great intentions. It's good to plan our futures, and it's equally good to reflect upon our past. That's how we learn and choose what to do with ourselves. But both went wrong by being so focused on their thoughts that they lost track of the circumstances, responsibilities, and opportunities right in front of them. Focusing on that would let them make the most of their lives. Chapter 8 The Balm of Humor by Jason Murchie A sense of humor is an excellent coping mechanism. I'm not offended by all the dumb blonde jokes, because I know I'm not dumb. And I'm not blonde. Dolly Pardon. Yes, the world is one big downer. It seriously brings me low sometimes. I slap my forehead, yell at the television, mumble under my breath, sigh deeply, and sometimes just need a beer. I mean, not all the time. But it's hard to watch the news or be on social media with Trump, Putin, COVID, cancel culture, obsessed corporations, and the anger. I feel like America has gotten angrier in the last decade. I was also born, or cursed, or graced, with a vibrant and unique sense of humor. When I'm at my best, I feel positive and like to kid around, make fun of stuff, and be lighthearted. So, yes, I think that humor and even lightheartedness are indeed values of the wise, not just childish buffoonery. There's a lot to laugh at in this world, and, hey, laughing's good for you. In other words, it's an excellent coping mechanism for dealing with life's slings and arrows. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Woody Allen A case can certainly be made that humans are survivors, that we are moral creatures, that we are about work, money, status, competition, sex, and adventure. That is certainly true to some degree, and we often take things way too seriously. Enter Stoicism and myriad modern self-help philosophies. But taking a relaxed, joyous, don't-sweat-the-small-stuff approach to life is one that humans also seem to possess. Football, video games, walks in the park, and, yes, comedy, provide much relief and distraction to Americans. It's an amazing feat of evolution, really, that joking and laughing and acting foolish are hardwired into us. Take a look at TikTok if you don't believe me. Indeed, think about how easily human beings in all cultures gravitate toward lightheartedness and joviality. Try this on for size. Two of the hardest working, most serious cultures, and the bad guys in World War II, the Germans and the Japanese, are known to really let loose when alcohol is the social lubricant of the evening. Ever seen pictures of Japanese businessmen acting the fool in a sushi or karaoke bar? How about Germany's Oktoberfest? It's virtually synonymous with letting loose and enjoying oneself. Think of the popularity of comedy movies and television shows. Who would listen to a minute of Woody Allen or Tyler Perry if there wasn't something valuable to gain? 
For millennia, jesters have been entertaining, joke tellers have been making up new ways to get a laugh, and class clowns have gone on to become famous comedians. In fact, as far as class clowns are concerned, it's pretty true that such kids usually have something lacking in their lives. Some stressors or situational problems that make goofing off and cutting up their unique and functional way of coping. Coping is how one must necessarily deal with suffering, pain, and sadness, lest suicide, drug addiction, depression, or other types of mental illness ruin one's life. Life isn't as serious as the mind makes it out to be, Eckhart Tolle. There are two main reasons why I find... Thank you for listening to VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. Where did you listen? This podcast has been brought to you by Newton Media Group. Check us out at newtonmg.com.